my wife Mahavash and I have been part of Jubilee since we came to this country about nine years ago. Now it's a privilege to be here and to preach the Word of God. Um, as you might know, we've been studying the book of Daniel. We've been going through this great book, and we're going to study chapter 6 of this book. And just before we get started with reading uh, this chapter, I'd like to give you a bit of background. Uh, the chapters in the book of Daniel are not in chronological order. Uh, so that when, as we read it, it, that doesn't necessarily mean that the events happened after one another. So uh, chapters 1 to 4, 5, 7, and 8 happen in the time of Babylon, uh, where chapter, chapter 6, 9, and 10 happen in the time of the Medo-Persian Empire. Now, the events that we're going to read in chapter 6 this morning, they happen under the rule of the Persian Empire, which is almost today's day Iran. Some of you might know that I'm from Iran, uh, or you can probably tell from my accent. Um, and these events take place uh, in the country that I was born at and grew up there. Now, I thought since these events are happening in Iran and since I'm Iranian, I'd merge the two cultures. I've lived here for about nine years. I've merged the two cultures. I've got some notes, which is pretty much a British thing to do. And <laughs> but I've got no points. <laughs> I mean, I haven't got three, four, or five. I've only got one. The point is that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior, and if you trust and believe in him, nothing, nothing can take you away from his love, from the love that he has for you. Now, this chapter is going to tell us that Satan can annoy us, Satan can disappoint us, but what he cannot do is that he can never take us away from the hands that were pierced for us, from the hands of Jesus Christ that were pierced for us. And that's pretty much my point. So I'm imagining the two cultures. Uh, yesterday we were speaking at a seminar with Paul Cattrall and uh, Abbas, and it was about multicultural work at church. And I thought I'd give them an authentic part of multicultural work. They wanted to know how to work with Muslim backgrounds, how to work with people from the Middle East. And I thought I'd show them an authentic bit. So I went with no notes. And they didn't believe me at the beginning when I said I've got no notes because they were expecting some papers and some notes. But then they wanted to know how multicultural churches work, and I showed them an authentic bit. <laughs> anyway, I know this is not an archaeology lecture, but... I'm trying to go back to, uh, to history just a bit, just to create some links. Uh, king Darius and Cyrus seized power from uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, uh, who was the king of Babylon. When they were in power, they gave freedom to the Jews. So Jews were able to live in the country freely. They were able to worship their God. Daniel lived... Uh, in today's day, Iran, for the last part of his life, and his tomb is in Susa. It's a town in uh, southwest Iran. It's 200 miles away from my birthplace. Um, that's a great thing. <laughs> now, 200 miles in Iran, it's not a, 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 long, a long distance, really. But uh, People of God were welcomed in the country. They were welcomed by the people and the government. They were felt that they were made feel that they are part of that country, they are part of that people, and they were free to worship their own God. Now, over 2,500 years later, the same country and the government of that country and pretty much some people of that country dislike people who want to worship the true God. They dislike those that want to worship Jesus Christ. They do not want to hear the words of God. 
They do not want to hear that Jesus is the Lord and Savior. My ancestors, they welcomed people of God. They, they welcomed Jews into the country. They gave them freedom. They, become, they became friends with them. But now, I am not welcome to worship God in that country. Now, they, they really don't want us there. What does that tell us? 2,500 years, governments change. The countries change. People's point of view change. But there is only one thing that doesn't change. And it's God and him alone. Now, I felt that there, there is a link here, and I felt some kind of similarity between myself and Daniel, and many of us here uh, today. As you can see, Jubilee is a multicultural church. We have people from many different nations. It's just great to be together, and it's just great to hear people worshiping God in their own language. Now, we weren't welcome in the country that welcomed Daniel uh, many years ago, but we were welcomed here. And even more than that, we are welcomed into the church and we feel that we are part of the family. Jubilee is a family to me and I'm sure to many of us here. Many countries like Eritrea, for example, they claim that 50% of the population is Christian, whereas Christians are being persecuted. Bible-believing Christians in Eritrea are being persecuted. And we have many Eritreans here, many brothers and sisters who have fled their country because they were claiming because they were worshipping Jesus Christ. Turkey, it has the seven churches mentioned in Revelation in it. But it's a very close country. Persia became home to Daniel because he had God on his side. This country, and indeed this town, is home to me and many of us here because God has called us here. Because the presence of God is here with us, and that's why it makes it home to us. You welcomed us here. Even more than that, you became our family. My prayer is that this country doesn't end up in the same situation as my, as my homeland did. Would you be surprised if in 10 years' time you're not allowed to read the Bible in this country? Would you be surprised if in 10 years' time you're not allowed to possess a Bible? I wouldn't be surprised because things do change. That's why we need to teach our children. We need to teach our, teach our next generation. We need to leave a legacy for our children. We need to teach them to walk with God. We need to teach them to prioritize their relationship with Jesus Christ over everything. This world needs Daniels, and we need to teach our children to be Daniels. This country has raised mighty men and women who were willing and are willing to give everything and have given everything that they've had for the glory of God. And let us do the same. Let us do the same and let us teach our children and our next generation to be the same. Because God is faithful. He keeps his promises. That's my rather long introduction to Daniel 6. Uh, If you have a Bible, please turn to chapter 6. It will also be projected on the screen. Uh, I will read a few verses at a time uh, because it's a long chapter. So it's Daniel chapter 6. I'm going to go through verses 1 to 5. Now, it pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps, to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the high officials and satraps, because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. 
Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault, because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, Well, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Now, from the beginning of this chapter, we can see the fulfillment of a prophecy in chapter 2 of Daniel, chapter 2, verse 39, where it says, Another kingdom inferior to you shall rise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. God's word is true, and there is no fault in it. And we can depend on it. Darius had to uh, watch these 120 governors because his kingdom was weaker than Nebuchadnezzar. He was an authoritarian person. He was able to rule over his kingdom, whereas Darius, the king, had to uh, put 120 governors to look after his kingdom so that he, he doesn't suffer any loss. And he knew that over these 120 people, he needs to set some other people who can watch over them because power can be dangerous. If it's not handled correctly, corruption will find its way. So here, Daniel is proof that you don't have to be corrupted to be successful. He's a man that was brought into exile, and now this godly man is receiving promotion. He has one of the top jobs in one of the most powerful empires. Did he have to lie to get this job? Did he have to be corrupted to get there? Did he have to pay someone to put in a word for him? He didn't have to do any of these because it was God's will for him to be there and God's favor was upon him because he was faithful to God. His jealous enemies come against him but they can't see a single misstep. How many of our politicians can stand the test today? Now, these people who were looking to find fault in Daniel, they weren't uh, stupid. They were really clever people. They, they went through the, all the books, uh, through all the taxes that Daniel had to pay. They went through every single record that Daniel had, and they couldn't find a single fault because Daniel was an honest man. How many of our politicians today can stand the test today, the test that Daniel went through? As I was getting prepared for this, I, I was reminded of the words that Gene Woodward wrote a few weeks ago or months ago about God revealing things. And it was at the time that we could read in the news day after day about the corruption of our politicians, about the corruption of people that one day many people were looking up to, but now they've been found that they are guilty. They're guilty of corruption. This is the world that we live in, and that's why we need more Daniels. We need more Daniels to be in power. We need more Daniels to be in the government. We need godly people, those who work with God on a daily basis, The question here is that why did they really want to get rid of Daniel? What was the reason? What was the problem? Because Daniel seemed to be a good man. He was, in, uh, he was a, a friend with the king. But why did they want to get rid of him? What I could find here was that envy and jealousy of his enemies. They were jealous of him. Because this man, who's an, a Jew, who was brought here as an exile, is coming to our country. He's taking one of the top jobs and... What are we doing here? We'll have to listen to him. He will be telling us what to do. That's not true. That's not right. We should be the ones who have the power, and we should be the ones taking this role. So we're going to set him up. We're going to frame him, and then we're going to get the job, and everything will be sorted. 
Envy and jealousy is a powerful tool for Satan. He uses it. But Daniel's integrity is beyond doubt. His intellectual knowledge is beyond the standard of those that were against him. He was trustworthy and he wasn't corrupt or negligent. I find it funny that after these people uh, try to find fault in Daniel and they can't find anything, they say, okay, let's find it in relation with his God. (laughs) They think that Daniel's God is the same as their God or God's. They think that Daniel's God is something that was created by man. His God was created by Daniel, and then they can find fault in him because they were able to find fault in their own God or gods. So it was a bit funny to me. After all the events that had happened, they didn't know that Daniel's God is alive. Daniel's God looks after him. He is powerful and faithful. But after thinking, one of the governors has a good idea. If they can't find weakness in Daniel and indeed in his God, there is someone else in here that they can't find weakness in, and it's the king. So they go, look at his character, the character of the king, and they can easily find some stuff that they can go and grab, they can easily find weakness in there, and they can use that against Daniel. So they go and set up a plan. We're going to read verses 6 to 9 now. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselor and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction, that whoever makes a petition to any god or man for thirty days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, Establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. So basically, what the governors are telling the king is that for 30 days, you're going to be God. For 30 days, you're going to have the absolute power over everything, over people's life. For 30 days, you're going to tell people to worship you, and they will because they've got no other choice. You are their king. Exercise your power over them. If you tell them to worship you for 30 days, they will do it. We know it. Otherwise, they will be thrown in the lion's den. And it sounded good to the king. Have you ever been in a situation where you had absolute power over everything? Or at least the things that you had in your hand? Have you ever been in that situation? Do you know what having power feels like? How does it feel to have power over people, to be able to tell them what to do, knowing that they will do it because they've got no other option, because they're scared of the lions, or they're scared of other things? Have you had people praising you? Have you had people telling you how awesome you are? Now, there is nothing wrong with encouragement, but it's the issue of heart. What was your reaction when people came and praised you? When people came and told you you are great, you are awesome? Did you like it? Did it make you feel you're invincible? And did you decide there and then to put their advice or whatever they're telling you into practice, believing them? Or did you give all the glory to God? Because He is the one who's in power. He is the one looking after your life. He is the one blessing you with all you have. When making decisions, do you take some time to go 
and speak to God. You know, in Isaiah, in chapter 6, I think, uh, Jesus Christ is called Wonderful Counselor. When making important decisions in life, do we go to this counselor that is called Wonderful? Do we go and consult him? Do we go and ask him for his opinion? Do we go and ask him what his plans are for us? When you want to get married, do you go to godly men and women at church and ask for their advice? There's nothing wrong with encouragement, as I mentioned. It's, it's just great. In fact, it's biblical as well. To encourage one another, to build one another with words. But it's all down to the issue of heart. What did these governors have in their heart when they approached the king, when they went to him and said, Oh, king, live forever, and all the stuff that they usually would say to a king. And then when they told him, will you pass this law? It was the issue of heart. They had something in their heart against Daniel. It wasn't that they wanted the king to be glorified. It wasn't that they, they were really a big fan of the king and they wanted him to, give, to get all the glory. It was that through that, they wanted to get rid of Daniel. And what was in Darius's heart when he signed the document? He probably had pride, thinking, yes, these guys are reminding me of my power. These guys are telling me of what I should be really doing, what I should have been doing, and I'm going to put it into trial for 30 days, and I'm going to be the king, and I'm going to have the absolute power over, over everything because it's my right, because I am the king of this empire. That's what, he, that, that's what was in his, heart, in his heart. Otherwise, he wouldn't have signed the document there and then. He took all their praise personally. He really believed them. He didn't look into their hearts. He didn't have that sort of discernment at the time. Now, we've got many other examples in the Bible that people make decisions without consulting God, without asking God for his will, and the result is a mess. For instance, in the book of Ruth, it's a great book. If you haven't read it, I really recommend it to go and read it. It's only uh, about four chapters. It's one of the short stories in the Bible. Uh, where Elimelech, who is the husband of Naomi and has two sons, decides to move because there's famine in the, in the land, and he decides to move against the will of God to a neighboring country where God had told him not to go to. And he makes that decision without consulting God. He, he makes that decision without prayers. He takes his family to Moab to protect them from the famine. And what happens? He dies there. And his two sons die there. So his wife is left with nothing. We can find a lot of other examples in the Bible that people make decisions without seeking God first. And the result is really a mess. As Christians, we must have one thing in our hearts and in our minds, that to do everything and all that we do for the glory of God. If we're encouraging a brother or sister, let it be for the glory of God. If we're going and praising someone for the, for the work that they've done, let it be for the glory of God. If we are being encouraged, give all the glory to God. So they couldn't find fault in Daniel, but they found weakness in the king. Let's read verses 10 to 13 and see what happens afterwards. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open towards Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, 
O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the laws of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. What did Daniel do when he heard the worst ever news that he could hear? I mean, the worst news for somebody who believes in God is that you cannot worship God. That's why many of us are here, because we couldn't worship God. They told us that you're not allowed to do it. They didn't have lions then, but they had some other stuff. <laughs> Probably as scary as <laughs> lions in a den. But what did Daniel do? Did he get scared? Did he say, mm, okay, I'm going to pray in secret. Nobody will find out. It's only 30 days. Did he even say, oh, I'm not even going to pray for 30 days. Nothing major is going to happen. No harm's done. God will understand. I'm just going to forget about it. I'm going to go part-time, and then I'm going to come back to normal. He didn't say all this stuff. He didn't, he didn't say a word after he heard the news. What he did instead was what he's best at. He went to his room as normal as he would have done in the past. He knelt down. He opened his windows towards Jerusalem, and he prayed three times a day as he did. Now, what do we do if we hear bad news? Do we pray? Or do we sit down and think, what do we do in our own human strength? What Daniel did is not easy. Many of us have been in that situation, not necessarily to do with worship, but we have heard bad news in our lives. Sometimes very shocking news. What did we do? Did we decide to sit down and spend time with God and lift it up to Him and ask Him to come and touch it? Or did we decide to go and make plans out of our human mind? For Daniel, God came first all the time. That's why he goes and prays. That's why he goes to him and tells him what the issue is. He was praying towards Jerusalem because he was expecting an answer. And he prayed three times a day because he really meant business with God. It wasn't just like, I've prayed and that's it. Prayer is not a duty in Christian life. It's an honor to be able to speak to God. Now, sometimes we might get into a habit of, I've done my prayer, that's it for the day, and I'm going to get started with my normal life. That's not what God wants. We really have to mean business with him when we pray. Prayer is not a habit. Daniel didn't make a habit of praying three times a day. He prayed three times a day because he really meant business with God, because he enjoyed spending time in the presence of God, because he wanted to tell his God of what he has in his heart. The God who brought the Israel out of Egypt from slavery, the same God can deliver him, and that's why he knows it, and that's why he goes in his, into his room, opens the windows, and prays. How many of us pray, not necessarily three times a day, and when we hear an answer that is not what we wanted, or when we have our ears closed, and we don't hear an answer, we come up and say, oh, I knew it. It's happened to me when I've prayed for, for a particular stuff, and then I heard a no, and I said, well, I knew it. 
But that's not faith. God wants us to pray with expectations, knowing that we have come to his presence in faith, bringing him all our worries, lifting up what we have in our hearts, knowing that he can touch it. Not that what we want in our hearts, but knowing that his will is the best for us. Knowing that what he gives us is the best thing possible anyone could have given us. And it's only him and him alone that can give us, give us that. Now it's great. I'm, I'm, I really have to praise the governors for their faith. Because they knew where to find Daniel. They even had more faith <laughs> than me, probably. They went and found Daniel in his prayer time because they knew, regardless of what happens, Daniel is going to go, he's going to kneel down, he's going to open the windows, and he's going to pray. This is what, what I call faith. They had faith in Daniel that he would do it anyway, that he would do it whether the law means that he would be killed or he would be thrown in the, the lion's den or he'd ha- he would be sent back somewhere. But he did it anyway. And the governors went and found him in faith. Then they go to the king and remind him of the document he had signed, and the king reminds them that, yes, I know that I've signed it, and I know that it cannot be changed because this is the law of the Medo-Persian Empire. This is the law that if I say something, it cannot be changed. And he's proud of that because his words cannot be changed. Then they remind him of the problem. They remind him, you signed it, and this Daniel is doing what you have signed not to do. Now, it's interesting, when they talk about Daniel, they don't say Daniel, the governor. They don't even say Daniel. They say the exile from Judah. It's like they consider him a second-class citizen. Although he has one of the top jobs in the government, he is still a second-class citizen to them. He is still an exile uh, to the Persians and to the Medians. Now, this is prejudice. This is racial prejudice. And we probably see that uh, in many parts of the world. What did Jesus do? Who was Jesus hanging around with? Did he go and find top governors, those that were ethnically and racially the best in the country? Or did he go and spend time with the sinners? Jesus' closest friends were tax collectors. They were the ones marginalizing the society. They were the ones that nobody else wanted anything to do with. Now, this is how it should be. And I'm proud to say that at Jubilee, we have people from many nations, we have people from many tribes and languages getting together in unity. And even more than that, as I said, being a family. We are a family. It's great to be here. It's great to be part of this church. It's great to be able to call it a family. And it's great to be able to know that there are many people from many different walks of life, even from this nation and nations beyond. And we are all one. We're all equal. And we display that in our worship. We declare that in our worship. We're all equal, no matter where we come from, no matter what language we speak. And I just love that. And I praise God for it. And not even that, we even go beyond that. We even go beyond this point and we become friends with the marginalized. We are famous for it as a church. We are famous that we are friends of the marginalized. We are friends of the poor. 
and I love it because this is something that is in our DNA. It's something that Jubilee is famous for. And I want to thank you all for it because it just doesn't happen by itself. It's God working in this church and through each and every one of us. Did you know that churches in uh, most multicultural cities in the UK talk of us, Jubilee, in a small town in the northeast of England as one of the multicultural churches that do it the best way? I was in uh, leadership training uh, a couple of years ago uh, in Sheffield, and it was interesting. Uh, people from London came to me and said, how do you do it at Jubilee? And I said, what, what do we do? And he said, how do, how do you have such a, a church, diverse church, people from many nations and backgrounds? We live in London. We have people from many different nations in that large city. They come to work. They stay there. They live there. They do all sorts. And they are, we, we have pro- probably more than 50 different nations in that city. But we don't, we don't know how to do it. And I got proud of it at that moment, and I, don't know, I was thinking, yeah. But then God reminded me that it's not us, it's him building his church. And it is just great to know that it's him building his church. And the reason we are the way we are today is because God is building his church. And of course, he's working through us, but Psalm, uh, I think it's 84, reminds us that unless God builds the house, the workers are working in vain. So unless he's at work, unless his spirit is leading us, all we do is just working in vain. He is the one building his church. He is the one at work at Jubilee and many other churches. And that's why we have the face that we have today. That's why Jubilee looks the way it, the way it does today. Sorry, it was Psalm 127 that says, unless God builds the house. Now, we're going to read verses 14 and 15. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Daniel heard the bad news. What did he do? He went and prayed. The king heard the same news. What did he do? He was distressed. And just to heat things up, the governors come and remind the king that the law cannot be changed, as if he needed a reminder. The king is not in control anymore. That's why he's scared. That's why he's distressed, because he's not in control anymore. You know, control is a big thing. Power is a big thing. And the king liked it, and he loved it when he signed the document. He knew that he would get more power through this. But now he knows that even his power as the king of the Medo-Persian Empire cannot change anything because he said it and it's all done. So because he's not in control, he's scared. He wants to get Daniel out of the trouble. If God has a den planned for Daniel, even the very king cannot change it. He can do nothing about it. Darius the king, who would have his wishes prepared before him just by saying a word, had to really work hard on this one. He was trying his best to save Daniel. But God was there, and he was watching over Daniel. And the king, nor anyone else, can change God's plans. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid 
on the mouth of the den and the king sealed it. So we read that the king is declaring a great thing here. He's telling Daniel, he's reminding Daniel, your God, the one you were serving continually, he is the one who is who will be helping you. I can't do anything anymore. It was my fault, but I can't do anything. But I have faith in your God, the one that you were serving continually, the one that you were saving day by day, every second of your life. So he goes back. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Now we can imagine the king. He was really stressed. He was distressed because of the decision that he had made, because of throwing his friend into the den, and he was probably thinking of his own benefits as well. What if Daniel goes? What if Daniel is eaten by the lions? Who who am I going to replace him with? Who have I got that has the wisdom and the knowledge that Daniel has to look after my kingdom? He was a bit worried about his stuff as well, but his main worry was that he couldn't do anything. So he goes back to his palace, and he can't sleep. Now we can imagine Daniel in the den... He's got a few lions around him, and he's probably using one of them as his pillow. <laughs> he's asking the other one to massage him. <laughs> but no, have you ever come across a lion? Have you seen a lion in your life? I've seen a real one. They're not like cats. They do look like cats, and they are categorized as cats, but they're not like cats. So if one comes into the room now, you can't go, oh, little lion, come here, come here. You can't stroke them on the back. Because you know what happens. I saw one, and I saw one within five yards. And I wasn't scared. I didn't run away. It wasn't because I had faith that God would help me. It was because it was taxidermied, and it was in Dorman Museum. It was on the top. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, but it was scary. It's not a very welcoming sight, though. So we wouldn't have one in Jubilee. So really, if you see a lion, the first thing is that you get scared. They weigh about 400 pounds. So when we think of being taken to the extremes, it's important to know that the hand of the Lord is upon us. So Daniel was in the worst place that he could ever be, and he wasn't scared. He prayed beforehand, and he knew that God is in control, and he was taken to the extreme. He was taken to one of the most dangerous animals. And lions live in social groups. They can't live alone. They can't live on their own. They'll have to be in social groups. And there was definitely more than one lion there. And he's surrounded with these wild animals. And what does he do? He's just relaxed. Not like the king. The king had the most luxurious bed. They probably didn't have memory foams at those times. But he had the best bed ever possible. And he was in the best place ever that anyone could, want, uh, could, could be at. But he couldn't sleep because he was distressed, because he had no control over, over things, because he didn't have the God that Don, Daniel had. He didn't have him to go to him and to pray to him and ask him for intervention. Whereas Daniel was in the worst place ever, but he wasn't distressed. He was taken to the extreme. He wasn't distressed because he was a godly man. He had faith that God would save him. He had faith that God is watching over him, that God is looking after him. The one who has been looking after him since he was born. The one who even knew him before he was conceived. And the one who has been with him all the way from Jerusalem to Babylon and then to Persia. 
And it's a great thing to know. The same God is looking after us today. The same God gives us the same promise. We might be taken to the extremes in our lives. Some of us might be in situations that we think, oh, Daniel's uh, den, Daniel being in den of lions is nothing compared to my situation. Mine is even worse. Some of us might think that we are distressed. Some of us might think that there is no control over the situation now. But the Bible tells us, as we have read already, that there is one person who has control over everything. There is one person who is willing to come and save you. There is one person who loves you and watches over you. And it is and it's God. He is our Father. He watches over us. Now it's funny, because the king is trying to comfort Daniel. The king is trying to tell him, oh, your God will look after you. But he's the one needing comfort. If Daniel had time, he would have probably prayed for him, laid, laid hand on him, saying, oh, don't worry, I'll be fine. I'm going to go, just, I'm going to spend another night. It's like sleeping over at my friend's house. It's nothing major. I'm, I'll, I'll be fine. I'll see you tomorrow morning. The king wouldn't believe him, because the God that the, the King Darius had is nothing like Daniel's God. He's not alive. That's why he can't do things. Whereas Daniel's God is alive. He is with him every step of the way. Now, when Daniel is thrown into the den, every precaution was taken that it would be humanly impossible to save him. That if anyone wanted to go and save him, the king had sealed the large stone in front of the den. So if anyone wanted to move that stone, they had to go and break the seal. That, w- that was a major offense. They would be the one going to the den next. Then th- there was a large stone in front of the den, similar to the one in Jesus' tomb. And they had to move that to, to save Daniel. That's if the lions hadn't eaten him already. So it was humanly impossible for anyone to save Daniel. That's, uh, as I was reading this bit, um, and I was thinking about the king and Daniel and com- uh, comparing the two, the one lost his sleep uh, over the mistake that he had, Daniel being in the lion's den, uh, having a sleepover at his friend's house. It, I was reminded of uh, Psalm 84, uh, verse 10, where it says, For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. Yeah. And this is true. A day with God is better than spending a thousand days in anywhere else. Being in his court, being in his presence, is the best place we can ever be. The psalmist even goes on to say that I would rather be the doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Being a doorkeeper, you have to stand stand outside the door. You you can't go in. He'd rather to, to stand outside the door of God, to stand outside his house where his presence is, where he knows that this is the house of my God, to be in a tent where you're safe from the rain or the sun. Now imagine Daniel trying to go to sleep. He's sleep, half asleep. He suddenly wakes up with snoring. He wakes up and he sees a lion. Oh, it's just a lion. Then he turns around to snuggle and he sees another one. Oh, it's just a lion. Now you can imagine the king on his luxurious bed, not even going to sleep. Now this story tells us, particularly this bit, that there is no place no place safer than being in the will of God. 
Sometimes we might think we are being taken to the extremes. Sometimes we might think moving outside our comfort zone is not really good. It's not something I want. But if God is with us, who can be against us? If we live within his will, that is the safest place ever we can be. For Daniel, it was God's will for him to be in the den of lions. Not that Daniel could come out and say, I was the one, I held them, I tied them all together overnight, and I have come out, I am the champion. For him to come out and say, it was my God who did it. It was him who looked after me. It was him who didn't let the lions eat me. King Darius couldn't break his own law, but Daniel, through prayer, broke the law of the nature. So naturally, for the, for the lions, they were hungry as well. We read in this chapter that lions were really hungry. So for them, to see a human being was just great. They were hungry. They could have eaten him within seconds. It's like, I'm hungry. What time is it now? <laughs> and there's a plate of rice with lovely kebabs, with full of flavor in front of you, and a large bottle of Coke next to it. And you just want to go and eat it and grab it. Or it's just like going to the house and you can see Mavish in the kitchen <laughs> cooking. Uh, wow. It's just great. You, you smell the aroma and you just want to sit down and eat. And then Mavish comes and tells me, no, you can't eat. Uh, are you joking? No, you can't eat. You need to go on diet. She might be right on this one, but it was the same for, for the, the lions. They were hungry. They were really hungry. And they saw this Daniel. I can imagine him having a bit of belly because it was like kind of, it's culturally good to have a bit of belly. <laughs> and then this tasty looking man in front of these lions and they want to go and get him and eat him and then go to sleep overnight knowing that they've had a really lovely meal. But they can't do it because it's God's will. It's God's will to change the laws of the nature when he wants to. He can close the lion's mouth if he wants to. Whereas Dan, uh, King Darius, sorry, he couldn't even break his own law. He had written something down and signed it. He couldn't tear it off. It, was, it wasn't a major thing. He could have just done with it, but for God, nothing is impossible. King Darius is slave of his own folly, but Daniel reigns with God. God closed the mouth of lions. Jesus turned the water into wine. Jesus made the blind to see. He made the lame to walk. And he can still do it today. And he will do it if he wants to. He made the blind to see. He can open our eyes to see. He is mighty and powerful. He is Alpha and Omega. And if we believe in him and stay true to him, he will do great things through us. Now we're getting to the end, almost the end of the chapter. It's verse 19 to 24 that I'm going to read now. Then at break of day, the king arose and went in his haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish, the king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, 
Has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth, and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him and also before you, O king. I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions. They, their children and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Now, King Darius, again, we can see some faith here, just like the governors who went and found Daniel praying. They knew he would be praying at that time, so they went in faith. King Darius is going in faith, calling Daniel. Oh, Daniel, are you okay? Did your God save you? He doesn't say, did you manage to give them some sleeping pills so that they could go to sleep so I could come and save you in the morning? He calls to Daniel, and the first thing he asks him is, what about your God? What did he do? He was expecting some kind of miracles. And this is faith. Then Daniel, the first thing he says, what is it? Imagine we're, I'm Daniel, and somebody comes to me in the morning saying, Surush, are you okay? The first thing I would say is, send a rope, man. Come on, save me somehow. Don't, don't, don't shout. You'll wake up the lions. But the first thing Daniel does, he doesn't ask for a rope. He doesn't ask for a ladder. He doesn't say, oh, keep it quiet. They're asleep. They'll wake up. They're hungry. He doesn't say that. The first thing he says is, my God saved me. My God didn't find any fault in me, and I didn't sin against him or you. It was my God who saved me. It's great at that time, distressing time. It was great that he was alive till morning, and now the first thing he wanted to do is to get out of the den. But the first thing he does is declares that my God is mighty, my God is powerful, and he is faithful. And he is the one who will keep his promises. And he is the one who's been watching over me. He is the one who broke the laws of the nature to save me. And he gives all the glory to God. He could have come up and said, well, I broke their neck and they couldn't eat me. But, In verse 23, we clearly read that no harm was done to him. I mean, even a small scratch. You can imagine how frustrated the lions were. They couldn't eat him. It's easy for us to give up in the time, when the times are really hard. It's easy to think that it can't get any worse. It was easy for Daniel. It couldn't get any worse being thrown in the den of lions. But if God wants to intervene, he will. Let's be like Daniel. Let's trust in God. Let's trust in Him when times are good and when the times are bad. Let's have faith in Him. Let's hold on to His word and His promises. Let us know with all our hearts that He can deliver us. Throughout the scripture, we learn that temptation and trials of life are being responded to. They come our way. We can't resist them. They will come our way. But we need to respond to them. We cannot run away from them. We cannot avoid them because they will be there. We need to deal with them and we need to respond to them. But we need to respond to them, not in our own abilities, but by lifting them up to God and asking Him to intervene in His own power. 
That's why Apostle Peter wrote in 1 Peter 4.12, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you. And again, he refers to the trials and says, These, he means trials, have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. So in everything we do, in every phase of life we go through, it's all for his glory. It's important to know that everything that happens, he is in control, and no matter what, he gets the glory. Then we're getting towards the end where King Darius declares a great thing about God, about the God of Daniel. In verse 25 to 28, we read, The King Darius wrote to all the people, nations and languages that dwell in all the earth. Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues he works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. This is a great declaration uh, by the King Darius. He's, he's really saying what we should say as Christians every day. He's declaring what we have to declare with our words and with what, the way we live life in our everyday life. He's telling people from every nation and tribe and language that the God of Daniel is the living God. He's actually evangelizing. He's telling them what we should tell the world now. Darish declares that the God of Daniel deserves reverence, that people are to tremble and fear before him. Darish says that Daniel's God is real. He lives, and he means business. When he says something, he does it. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders. How many of us Christians today believe that we can see sign, of, sign and wonders? How many of us, when we pray for the sick to be healed, really expect signs and wonders to happen, really expect healing to happen? When we pray for something, when we lay hand on the sick, do we really do it in faith? King Darius wasn't even a believer, but he's declaring it. Now, we need to believe it with every fiber of our being. We need to believe it in our hearts, and we need to believe it with our soul, and we need to de declare it in words. So to conclude, trials come our way. We all know that. But victory is ours too, because Jesus won the victory. He, he won the battle. He won it when he was on the cross. When his blood was shed for you and me, he crushed the head of the enemy. But he didn't stay on the cross. He rose again from the death. He rose from the grave. He is alive, as, just as we read today. He is alive today, and he is there to watch over us. He is there to guide us and lead us. And all we need to do is to declare that we want him, to receive him today. We heard Mary's testimony about Alpha. We heard about a frightened fish. And then we heard him that he's scuba diving. I, I can't imagine a fish scuba diving, but 
we, we, we can get the feeling what it's like to be with Jesus. His life probably, I mean, the stuff around his life probably hasn't changed. Trials still come his way. Temptations still come his way. But instead of getting scared, instead of letting fear to come into his heart, what, what he does is, he scuba dives, he goes to Jesus and tells him, these are my worries, you take them because you told me to. Because you promised that if I believe in you, you will take them away. And now I want you to take them away. What Jesus won is ours. We live in his kingdom and we inherit his kingdom. Let's declare that today. Let's declare that in every second of our lives. Stay faithful to God. Seasons come and go, but not pretty much in this country because there's only one season staying. But, <laughs> but when you say that in the Middle East or other parts of the world, it does make sense, really, that seasons come and go. Because in the, in, I was living in the southern part of Iran, and we really have four seasons. I know I can't believe it, but we really have four. We have spring, summer, autumn, and winter. And they all stay for three months each. And when you say that seasons change, it means something. It means that they're temporary. They do change. Well, not sure if the same concept applies here, but you get the feeling. You get what I mean. Things do change. Nothing is staying forever unless, apart from his God, uh, sorry, his love for us. His love is never ending. His love never changes. Now, I can imagine that some of us would be in a similar situation as Daniel in our lives. Some might think that I'm living with lions already. They're hungry. They haven't eaten me yet, but it's very close. Some of us might think that people are planning things for us. We bring frames. Some of us might think that temptations and trials of life are really overwhelming. They're coming our way. They're too strong for me. Now, what I want to encourage you to do is, as we sing the next song, to come forward so that we can pray for you. We have a God, Daniel's God, who saved him from the lion's den. He can save you. He can deliver you from this, every situation that you're in. I want to encourage you to come and be faithful. Uh, if I could ask the band to come up, please. If you'd like to respond to Amanda's words about healing, please also come to my right. But I really want to encourage you, if you're facing trials, if you're facing temptations in your life now, if you think it's getting too hard, please come forward so that we can pray for you. You can ask the ministry team as well to be ready so that when people come forward, we can pray for them.